Well, Blue Water, super excited to continue with you guys in our study of God's Word through the book of Colossians. This awesome little book takes only about 15 minutes to read the whole thing, so you totally should, um, where Paul is just beating this same drum over and over and over that it's all about Jesus. And, and we like that drum. <laughs> That's kind of our tagline here at Blue Water is that it's all about Jesus. And he makes that really clear in his writing. So I invite you to turn with me, if you have your copy of God's Word here, which I hope that you do, to the book of Colossians. Um, <clears throat> you can follow along on uh, the YouVersion Bible app on your phone if you uh, would like to do that as well. Uh, last week, we looked through verses uh, 15 to 20, and Paul is making like no bones about what he thinks about Jesus. He believes very clearly that Jesus is God, that he's creator, which sounds weird maybe, for us, if we have never thought of that before, that he's sustainer of everything, that he's the head of the church, that he's the firstborn from among the dead, and that he is the great reconciler of all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we're gonna dive a little deeper and camp down a little longer on the personal side of the reconciliation that Paul is talking about here. And we hear that word a lot today. People use the word reconciliation in all kinds of different ways and kind of comes to mean different things to different people. Well, when the Bible talks about reconciliation, it has the idea of changing or exchanging. So that a relationship would change and become different or be exchanged for another nature of relationship. Okay? Um, can I share with you a story I heard this week that is a really cool story of reconciliation? Is that okay? Um, maybe you're like Pastor Tim and you love World War II stories. I know he certainly does. And I think this is a pretty cool story. Uh, so it takes place during World War II, just after um, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So December 7th, 1941. That's a date that many people um, remember from this uh, devastating thing that went down. And the story is about a guy named Jacob de Shazer. It's the only time I'll try to say it. Jacob uh, was a, an airman, and he was part of uh, the first U.S. response after Pearl Harbor, the first uh, air battle afterwards, which was the Doolittle Raid, a bombing campaign over the city of Tokyo. And during the Doolittle Raid, um, Jacob and some of his... Um, airman crew, uh, had to eject from their planes and actually were taken as prisoners of war by the Japanese for a number of years afterwards. And it was a really, really awful time for Jacob. Um, several of his comrades were executed, some were starved to death, and Jacob certainly was mistreated and abused for quite some time. About two years in, he uh, received a little bit better treatment and they, they brought some books for, for Jacob and the guys that were still alive. And one of the books among the pile happened to be the Bible. And Jacob read the Bible for the first time and uh, he had grown up hearing about it, but it never meant much to him. And all of a sudden, he's say, saying uh, with Apostle Paul, it's all about Jesus. He gives his life to Jesus, he becomes a Christian. And what happened in Jacob's life is really interesting. These guards that would beat him and mistreat him and, and humiliate him, he began, instead of seeing them with hatred and hostility, to see them in love. Pretty crazy, right? Fast forward a couple of years, Jacob um, <clears throat> is released. He heads back to the US, but he doesn't stay there long. He actually goes back to Japan and... <laughs> 
for the next 30 years of his life, serves as a missionary to tell the very people that everyone would understand if he hated them after his experience, he wants to tell them it's all about Jesus. He wants to share the gospel for 30 years. But hang on, the story gets even better. During Jacob's ministry, he created some pamphlets sharing his story, distributed them everywhere. He was sharing the gospel to large groups. A man picked up his pamphlet and read about his story and how he had read the Bible and come to know Jesus. And this wasn't just any man. This was a guy who was there, an enemy who was there at Pearl Harbor. And not just anyone, not any, any enemy combatant, but in fact, the very guy, Mitsuo Fuchida, who was the leader, the leader of the first aerial wave attack at Pearl Harbor. That's a pretty big deal. He reads this pamphlet. Guess what? He opens the Bible. Guess what? He gives his life to Jesus. And he eventually meets Deshazer, Jacob, and they are Christian brothers now, share the gospel together to tens of thousands of people for a number of years and see all kinds of kingdom fruit. Isn't that the coolest story of reconciliation? Enemies, where there's hostility, now brothers in Christ. And I think this story really captures the change of relationship that Paul is talking about uh, in this section of Colossians that we're going to read together here in chapter 1. So we're going to read in uh, verse 21 all the way to 23 about how hostility can change to reconciliation. So Paul writes in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's it for today, that, that little chunk. And we might say, well, you know, don't we need a little more than that? Actually, this chunk is just a gospel punch. <laughs> it is short and sweet, but we don't need anything more than that today or, or any day. It is enough, and we're going to dive into that. Paul hits kind of four things. He talks about our past. He talks about our present. He talks about our purpose, and then he wraps it all up in verse 23 with this big if. We're going to hit that as well. So first, he talks about our past. And if you're here today, you might feel like you have a very unique life history, very unique past. And in one sense, we all definitely do. Some of us have had relatively an easy past. Some of us, unfortunately, that isn't quite the case. And that is true. Our pasts are not the same. But Paul basically says in broad strokes... They kind of are. <laughs> we all, in a sense, have the exact same past, and that if we're in Christ now, our past is that we were once alienated from God, he says. That's pretty crazy. Alienated, hostile, which really means hateful in, in the original language, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Being alienated is not a very good feeling. <laughs> Uh, have you ever had a feeling of alienation where maybe you used to go to a certain store, business, club, whatever, and because of a breakdown in relationship, you just don't anymore because you don't want to see that person because you feel alienated? We probably all have different ways where that's been true. And, and Paul is saying that's how it is between us and God. There's a fracture in the relationship. We're alienated from God. And he writes similar things elsewhere. It's not a one-off. He says in Ephesians 2, you'll see on the screen, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are harsh words about us, eh? And maybe that kind of sits weird because we're not super used to hearing it about ourselves. We think, I'm not, that's not me. I'm not alienated. I'm not sinful like that. I'm a good person. But the question becomes, am I really the best judge of myself and my own condition? Am I that self-aware? Self-awareness is hard. Don't put your hands up, but do you know someone who isn't very self-aware maybe? When they give you an assessment of themselves, that might not mean a whole lot if they're not a very self-aware person. Okay, and so maybe we're not the best guides on our own condition. It's kind of like you don't ask a skunk if something smells, okay? You just don't. They're maybe not the, uh, the go-to guide for, for stench, okay? Um, one time I was uh, old enough to know better, I guess, but I actually rescued a little baby skunk that was caught in a hockey net, and it was so cute, and it just was on its last legs, and I brought it to my grandfather, who was less than excited about saving this thing's life and putting it in his trunk. But I believed, you know, baby skunks don't, don't spray. And it turns out I was lucky, because three or four months only, and, and they do, but we didn't have any issues. But people freak out when you show them a skunk, because they smell really bad. It's actually amazingly bad. You can smell a skunk kilometers away. And so the question is, does the skunk know how bad it smells? And it turns out, actually, they don't because they like the smell of their own brand. Their nose, in fact, is numb to the smell. They can't detect their own stench. And in a little bit of the same way, I think it's the same for us. Like, maybe we aren't really equipped to know just how sinful we are. Maybe we are a little happy in our own brand of unholiness. Maybe it doesn't seem so wrong to us. Do we even have the ability to see how sinful we are before a perfect and holy God? I don't think we do. You might say, but I'm a good person. I'm like, you guys are lovely. You are so nice, so kind. But when we, when we say that, I'm a good person, we have to wonder, compared to... Compared to what? <laughs> compared to who? Am I just a good person compared to that one friend in my friend group who everyone knows their life is kind of a dumpster fire? Is that my standard? Just being better than a friend? If I use some kind of standard of my own creation, I could feel pretty good about how I measure up. But if I use the standard of God, the God of the Bible, who's perfect, and I'm not even close, the Bible would say. And this might sound pretty shocking and even kind of offensive because what we hear a lot of the time today is, you're awesome, I am awesome, I am enough, I am, I'm sufficient, I got this. And Paul is saying, you don't got this and you're not as awesome as you think. And part of the problem is that's become so popular to say we've actually shared the gospel like this sometimes. We say, you are like a beautiful wooden sculpture perfectly made, so gorgeous. You just have a couple little rough edges, barely any, but just a couple rough edges. You gotta add Jesus to your life. The master carpenter will come and just, he'll just do a couple strokes of sanding and just finish her off, but you're basically there on your own. And that isn't the gospel as described in scripture. We don't add Jesus to our life to just kinda clean us up a little bit. We're not almost there on our own. We're alienated from God. 
And we need to talk about the bad news because without understanding the weight of the bad news, the good news of the gospel doesn't seem that good. It doesn't seem that interesting or even that necessary. We have to understand how far lost we are on our own. But the good news is, Paul says, our presence, if we're believers in Jesus, is that we are reconciled. Reconciled. In fact, we can be called friends of God, and he does all the work to make that possible for us. There's a guy uh, in the Old Testament who's referred to as a friend of God. Do you know who that is? It's our buddy Abraham. Yeah, Abraham was called a friend of God. And Abraham's story is way back in Genesis. And in, in about Genesis 12, God makes some covenant promises to Abraham. They're biggies. Okay, a covenant is just like a binding agreement between two parties, a serious promise. And he tells Abraham he promises to give him a people, a nation, and a land, and that this nation would be so amazing that actually it would be a blessing to all nations on earth. A blessing would come to all nations through this family tree. And then these crazy promises are secured by God in a covenant, and something kind of weird happens in Genesis 15. And this is actually something called a suzerain covenant that they used to do back in the day that seems really gross to us. And what they would do is take a bunch of animals, cut them in half, spread the, parts, uh, spread the pieces apart, and dig a little trench between them, and the blood would, would fill the trench, like a trail of blood. And then both parties, it's kind of like a blood oath, both parties would walk between the pieces as a way of saying, I mean what I say so much that if I break my word, may what happened to these animals happen to me, okay? And God does this with Abraham. But the funny thing is, he prepares the pieces and only one passes down the trail of blood, only God. Meaning the promise being kept is not conditional on Abraham's ability to keep it. It's only conditional on God, on his faithfulness. And that might not seem super connected to us, but basically this reconciliation Paul's talking about here is a lot the same. For us, we are unable to keep our end of the bargain, okay? We are faithless. It is only Jesus who is faithful, who walks the trail of blood alone and dies the death that was mine to die because I didn't keep up my end of the bargain. He pays the price for my sin such that I can receive forgiveness, receive his righteousness if I will trust in him. And it says that's what happened. Paul says he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. What does that mean? That just means he's fully human and fully God. He had a real physical human body, which means he really physically suffered. He felt every bit of this death that was in that time and maybe still the worst death that could ever be imagined, crucifixion. He endured that and felt it all on our behalf. You might say that seems pretty unfair that he would take our punishment. We get out of paying the consequences of sin. That's because it is. <laughs> um, I really like action shows or movies where there's like a terrorist plot and like the plans of the terrorists are foiled by, by the hero. Um, a weird thing you need to know about me is I really love Israeli TV shows on this same, of the same vein. And uh, what happens sometimes in these shows is there'll be a really bad dude, really evil, you've spent the whole movie or the whole series learning just how evil they are. And then all of a sudden they'll get caught and they'll still have some information. And so the good guys will offer them something. You know what they offer them? 
a presidential pardon sometimes. And that just means the president, with a snap of his fingers, can say, you know what? All that guilt you've accrued this whole time, gone. We need something from you, so it's gone. Slate has been, been cleared. And as a viewer, you kind of burn inside, right? You're like, that doesn't seem to be fair, that all of a sudden this guilt is taken away from this evil person who spent all this time sinning. It's not deserved, and yet this is really what Christ offers us, pardon and forgiveness in an instant, absolving us of our guilt before God so it says that we're holy and blameless. And it, it seems unfair, and it isn't fair. In the best possible way, it's unfair for those of us who would believe in Christ. And this is the greatest news in human history, Paul's talking about here, that a reconciler, a rescuer has come. Maybe you've heard that hundreds of times in your life. It should still be exciting. <laughs> Even if I've heard it hundreds of times, if I'm not smiling about that, man, I would argue, guys, we might be missing a part of, a part of what makes it so beautiful if, if it just sounds like old news. And some of us may be hearing it for the first time ever today. I'm really excited to get to tell you about it. <clears throat> Next thing he says, he talks about our purpose. Our purpose, it says, is that we would be presented holy and blameless before God. Hope you're still with me. There's the purpose to this reconciliation, holiness. Now, you might wonder, what does the word holy even mean? Maybe that word has weird connotations to you. Maybe you kind of think of a holier-than-thou person who goes to church and looks down their nose at other people and thinks that they do so many good things that they're holy before God. Maybe it's a word you attach to all kinds of other words that we don't need to talk about right now. Maybe it is uh, a sacred thing, like a holy moment of having coffee or, you know, watching the leaf game in your man cave, crying, you know, that kind of thing. A sacred space could mean all kinds of things. But in the Bible, it means separate or other and also morally perfect. God is holy. He's morally perfect. It's not about doing good things. It doesn't describe Christians who just get enough gold stars behaving the right way, coming to church, giving money to the church, these types of things, serving to become holy. That's not how it works. This is really important. <laughs> Holiness isn't a condition of salvation. It's a byproduct of salvation. Holiness isn't a condition of salvation. It's a byproduct of it, which simply means you don't clean yourself up and then come to God. You don't get yourself scrubbed up and holy and then approach God. This is what makes Christianity different than every other faith system out there. We come to him a mess, and he does all the work to clean us up and present us holy, and that's the only way it has ever worked and will ever work. We can't make ourselves holy before him. A pastor I like uh, quite a bit, Vadi Bauckham, uh, I heard this week say this, and it, it kind of sounds weird at first, but stick with me. He said, in fact, the gospel doesn't require obedience. The gospel doesn't require obedience. Sounds weird. But that's actually what the gospel produces. Produces obedience. All the gospel requires of us is repentance and faith. If it required me obeying first, that would be me saving myself through my works. The obedience comes after the fact. We can't present ourselves as holy. We're in deep weeds. None of us is righteous on our own. Only in him can we be seen as holy before the Father. 
It's this crazy thing that Martin Luther called the great exchange, where we get to give our mess and exchange it for his righteousness. It's a pretty crazy exchange. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this is a great verse to describe the gospel. He says, uh, he made him who knew no sin, you'll see behind me, Jesus knew no sin, perfect, holy, to become our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, it probably seems weird to wear the label of holy and blameless about ourselves. <laughs> we might, that might not sit right with us. You know why? Because I know me pretty well, and I know I'm not that. And if any of us between Sundays maybe felt that at all, we could just say this, hey, I need a volunteer. We're going to project your thought life for the last week on the screen, and we're going to work through it and, and analyze uh, you know, the holiness of it. I am not signing up for that. I don't know that you would want to sign up for that. We often are aware of just how unholy we are. We know we stumble. We know we slip up. So what do I do with that feeling? Well, thankfully, it's not about my works. It's about Christ's works. We're no longer guilty. We have this positional holiness once and for all because of him. And even when I don't feel it, Romans 8.1 on the screen will say, there is now therefore no condemnation. No condemnation means no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It doesn't matter if I feel it. Now, we still walk in obedience. We still fight the good fight against sin. We want to grow in holiness. But when we don't feel holy and blameless, that's okay if we don't feel it. The Bible says it's true of us, whether we feel it or not, and we want to rest in that truth. So to review, our past is that we were alienated. Our present is that now we're in Christ. If we are in Christ, he's reconciled us. And the purpose is to be holy and blameless before the Father. And now he gives us this huge if, verse 23. He says this, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now the if sounds really... uh, it sounds two things. Number one, it sounds like if we just try hard enough, if we white-knuckle it enough and stay committed enough, then we'll be reconciled and saved. Again, that would make it all about me, so that can't be what he's saying. The other thing, it sounds like he's really doubtful. If you guys manage to make it to the end and stay with Jesus, then you'll be, then you'll be saved. If anyone a grammar nerd in here? You love grammar? Okay. Don't want to admit it. I see. I'm a grammar nerd. And the cool thing is, Paul, if he was expressing doubt or uncertainty, would use what's called the subjunctive mood in this verb conjugation. He doesn't. He uses the indicative, which means he's describing a reality that, hey, this is true. For believers in Jesus, you will endure. If you're a real believer, you'll endure. It's not a doubt. The continuing stable and steadfast is uh, rooted in this faithfulness in Christ. It's an outward demonstration of an inward reality. Kind of like baptism. We talk about baptism a fair amount here at this Baptist church. Surprise. And uh, when we talk about baptism, it's important to know what it is. Because some people say, oh, I'll be saved if I get baptized. Or uh, some people ask me, will all my problems go away if I get baptized? Will God be happier with me if I get baptized? The answer to that is no. (laughs) Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism is something that Christians do. So once you have given your life to Jesus, you get baptized as an outward uh, external sign of an inward reality about your heart, which has been given to Christ. 
It's like putting on the jersey, Team Jesus jersey, to show, hey, my allegiance is with him and with him alone. Outward sign of that. Kind of the same way. Remaining in Christ to the end is an outward reality, uh, sorry, an outward uh, result of an inner reality. Those who truly know Jesus will remain in him. The problem is it's those who truly know him. And I pray not in this church, but in a lot of churches around the world, right now, today, there's a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus and don't actually know Jesus. They're not in Christ. It's talking about people that are in Christ. Do you really know him? Or do you just know some facts from the Bible? It's an important question. When we're truly in him, we will remain in him. And that means, as painful as it is when we see people turn away from Christ, it means there must be something lacking there initially that there was not a true transformative knowledge of Jesus. And if you're at the point right now where you feel like walking away, man, your story with Jesus is not done because you're here. You got breath in your lungs. I encourage you. Remain in him. I've tried that. It doesn't work well to walk away from him. Remain in him. Paul says, continue in this stable and steadfast way by putting our hope in the gospel. That's our hope. This good news of Jesus, his reconciling of sinners to himself through his death and resurrection. That's hope. Maybe you're not aware, I think you are, that people today are desperate for hope. If you walk around our city, your neighborhood, your high school guys, or your college campus, it's very obvious, painfully obvious, how desperate people are for hope. And they're looking in all kinds of places they shouldn't be to find it. They're looking to uh, the next thing always. It'll always get better with the next thing, the next job, the next relationship, the next season, or the next political leader will fix stuff and bring us hope. Problem is, it doesn't go that way. This feels like a long time to say, but do you remember in 2008? Some of you may not have even been born in 2008, but in 2008, Obama was running for president and he had this poster that is really famous. I should have had a picture of it for you, I don't. Maybe you recognize it. It's his face, plain and simple, in uh, blue and red, and there's one word at the bottom and it just says, hope. And this picture was everywhere. It's kind of famous in art history now, modern history, as this like powerful poster. Everyone rallied around the hope that Obama was going to bring. And the guy who made the poster became quite famous. And then years later, they asked the artist, did he bring the hope that you expected? Did he leave, live up to the hype? And the guy famously just said, not even close. Surprise, surprise, all the stuff that he hated about the previous administration, he found in different ways angered him again in the new one. There wasn't hope that came. Hope was deferred. And all the places we look for hope outside of Christ will let us down. We'll be left saying, not even close. Sometimes we take a long time to, to learn that. Hope comes from freedom from sin, which is only in Jesus. That's the hope of the world, this gospel of Jesus Christ fulfills the very thing that's missing, which is restored relationship with our creator. That's what catechism, question one, that's what we're made for. Relationship with our creator, it's our only hope. And the hope is in this reconciliation because our biggest barrier to hope then is alienation from God. And the biggest source of hope then would be anything that would break down that barrier and restore it. Freedom from sin. That's why Jesus came. There's a great quote by a guy, good Canadian guy, D.A. Carson, said this. He said, if God had perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. 
If he had perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. That's it. And the beautiful thing is, this hope, this gospel hope, Paul says, has been preached in all creation, he says. That's amazing. And you might say, well, I've heard about people that live in places, though, and they haven't heard about Jesus. I've, I've been told the whole world doesn't know. So is that true? Well, no, not everyone has heard about Jesus. We hope that changes. But Paul's saying, to the, he's speaking to the great extent to which the gospel has gone out in the world. And this is, language nerds, another really cool thing. Paul's writing this very letter in Greek. The New Testament is written in the Greek of the people, which enabled it, God, I believe, enabled that, such that the gospel message at that time went out to pretty much the whole known world because of this little thing that men think about apparently a lot called the Roman Empire. Okay, and that meant that the extent of the Roman Empire and the knowledge of Greek, people in North Africa, people in Egypt, people in the Middle East and Asia, and essentially the entire European continent got this gospel message of hope. And that's still happening on an even bigger scale today, guys. Do you know, on a day like today, many, many people are hearing this good news and moving from alienation to reconciliation with God. That's awesome. And by the millions every year, still, and you know what's really cool? In all creation also includes little old Sarnia. Actually includes this very church, you, here today. And that means many of us in this room have already received this gospel message, this hope. That's amazing, we celebrate that. May we never get tired of hearing about it. We don't move beyond the gospel ever. We don't graduate. And it also means some of you here, under all creation, have never heard this, have never received the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... May I humbly submit to you today, consider Jesus. You've been looking for hope, I bet, in all kinds of places. How has that worked out? There's only hope to be found, real lasting hope, and it can be received in Jesus. And we would love to talk to you after the service, myself, one of our staff, about what would that mean for you to put your trust in him, to be reconciled to God. Maybe you're thinking, you don't know the evil deeds and just how evil they are that I've done. You don't know how unholy I am. Man, you got your own past, but remember, we all have the same past. And thankfully, it's not our work, but Christ's that matters. If we believe, we're almost done, sorry, if we believe we've been reconciled to Christ, our present condition is holy and blameless if we're in him. And if that's true of us, I think our life will reflect that we get how big a deal that is. We'll live different. Uh, there's a cool story Pastor Tim was sharing with me this week about uh, a guy, an engineer, who had some means. He's a wealthy guy who was working on a project he oversaw. And he was working on scaffolding three stories up, which no one should ever do. That's terrifying. And he was up at this height, and all of a sudden, things didn't go well, and he fell backwards. And a lot of people saw this happen, and a lot of the people saw him tumble, which, if you fall on your back, like three stories is pretty high. And they assumed he'd be dead or close to it. What people underneath saw instead was a laborer who was right underneath when this guy started falling. And while you and I, not you, certainly I, may be tempted to want to move if someone was about to fall on my head. 
and self-preservation. And instead, this laborer did something crazy. He grabbed a pole of scaffolding beside him and he grabbed the one on the other side and he braced himself as hard as he possibly could and he took the full weight of this engineer falling on top of his head. And what happened was the engineer was, was banged up, but he was largely fine. The laborer was very hurt. And even after a significant amount of time in the hospital, he never was able to return to work. So he survived, but he was, he was pretty severely um, disabled for the rest of his life. And a reporter picked up the stories a few years, the story a few years after it happened and kind of thought they'd have a, a sweet story about how this rich guy crushed this laborer and he probably wasn't even that thankful and he ruined his life and he, he got to just keep living unimpaired. And so they interviewed the laborer, and this is what the laborer uh, said. <clears throat> they asked um, how the wealthy engineer had treated him after the injury. And the man said, he has given me half of what he owns, including a share of his business. He's always concerned about my needs. He never lets me lack anything. Almost every day he gives me some kind of token of thanks or remembrance. And I think this type of reconciliation Paul's talking about, if we really get it deep down in our guts, we will live in such a way that we are thankfully remembering, worshiping, surrendering, honoring Jesus, our great hope, our great reconciler, and what he's done for us. It should produce that kind of a life in us. Not half our stuff, but all of us. Not because we have to, or we owe him that, or we could pay him back, but because he deserves it, and we desire to honor him that way when we really get it. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word, that we can know you, this special revelation that you have spoken. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, may we <laughs> um, never think, may I never think I need to add anything, dress up anything in a small section of verses like this, a simple gospel, but so profound is so much enough for us, the power of God unto salvation. We're so grateful, Lord. I pray that whether we've heard this thousands of times, it seems like um, we would be moved to recognize the beauty of it, to understand how far off we are on our own and how badly we need you. Even if we came to faith as a seven-year-old child, may we understand with your help that we were in deep weeds. And for those of us who don't know you, Jesus, who are here, maybe we've given up on you, maybe we've wanted to throw in the towel or walk away, or maybe we've never even heard this before and we're just kind of reeling from understanding there's a, an alienation here, God. I pray through the power of your spirit that you'd work in the hearts and minds of those who are here, Lord, that they would understand their need for you. They'd stop looking in all the wrong places for hope. We thank you that only hope comes through Jesus and that we can know that hope for real. And so I pray that you would do your thing, Lord, and that those who have questions might have the courage to ask and that we would see lives changed in this place. I pray you go with us. Send us out in your spirit this week. Amen. Blue Water, you are loved. Thanks for being here. Have a great rest of your day.